Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, the Writers Guild has been on strike officially for 100 days. We're going to hear the latest on both Hollywood strikes later in the show. It will end. I have no idea how. I have no idea when. But it will. But first, let's sit back and unwind from the week that was with two excellent humans. With us this week, we have comedian and host of the podcast, Dr. Game Show, Joe Firestone. Joe, hello. Hi, Greta. Also here is writer for Ted Lasso and the host of the podcast, The Redemption of Jar Jar Binks, Dylan Marin. Dylan, welcome back. Hi, Greta. Thanks so much for having me back. Thank you for coming on. Okay, so this week we got to do another version of Burden or Delight because it is just so much fun. This is a very simple game. Even calling it a game is a little strong because there are no rules and there's definitely no score. (laughs) Essentially, we're just going to talk about three different news stories and whether they are a burden or a delight. So I think we should start with the study about dinner time. It is based on census data and it concluded that people in Pennsylvania on average eat dinner at 5.37 p.m. So, Joe, what do you think? Is this a burden or a delight? You know, I I have eaten early dinners before in my life, but that just means that the rest of the night is going to be snacks, right? So it's like (laughs) if you are eating dinner, you can eat dinner at 4, you can eat dinner at 2 p.m., but then you're just going to know that there's going to be about three hours later, there's going to be some snacks. So maybe Pennsylvania, they should have done a census ask about what's the snack situation starting at like 8. Snack situation. That is a really good point. I am a person, like, I kind of love eating an Mm. early dinner. I also love drinking earlier in the day. I just feel like I metabolize it so much better than I do later at night. Uh, So I think I would call this one delight. It sounds like, Joe, you're verging more well, maybe maybe Bur- more snacks burden. later is kind of a delight, though. You vote burden. Burden, burden. What, what do you think, Dylan? Um, well, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to speak up here because <laughs> no one is taking into account those of us who suffer from acid reflux, oh. from GERD. There you go. And that was really weighing on me pretty heavily Mm. as you Mm -hmm. two were having that conversation without taking us into account. I'm so sorry for that. And thank you. And and thank you for your accountability. And I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you. I'll write you a letter. I'm sorry. You'll write me a letter, Joe. So Joe's not taking accountability now, but she will later uh, through words. Um, But I just want to say our training as GERD havers, G-E-R-D, is to always eat as early as possible. Mm -hmm. In fact, I read a book. This is not a plug. I read a book that was like, you know those books that are so popular that then they do a spinoff cookbook that is Uh like to accompany the the chapter book? Um, That's what I call all books. I read chapter books. Um, But I'm, that's my level. Anyway, they the whole thing was uh, he refers to it as the acid watcher's kitchen. 
And he oh. said the Acid Watcher's Kitchen closes. And I believe the Acid Watcher's Kitchen closes at 7. Oh. So I think this is a delight. Does your kitchen close before 7 usually? Absolutely not. It did for the like four weeks after I read the book right, and was right. rocked by it. And I was yeah. like, I'm, I'm going to stop this. Uh-huh. And then I realized that I had to... Um, uh, live live in the world with other humans yeah. and another human schedules. Yeah. So yeah, speaking of schedules, Joe, when do you usually eat dinner? Well, I just realized that the average time is 5.37, so that means yeah. some people are eating way earlier. I know! Isn't that it, wild? Because you know people are eating at 8, so that means yes, there are people, people are eating, eating at 3.30. 3.30. Honestly, I love that. I love that. Go off. That's what my dog does. I am jealous of loaf. My dog started eating at seven, and he pushed it back earlier and earlier throughout the years, and now he eats at three thirty. Oh, okay. Maybe love was part of this study. Maybe love completed the census. I gotta say, as someone who enjoys eating dinner early, it does make like dinner reservations so much easier at restaurants. It does. It's like it does. you know, yeah. like the hip spots. They have the opening at five forty-five yeah. or at like nine, and like yeah. I know which one I'm going to pick, and I'm totally cool with that. And it's so cool because you get to just walk up to the restaurant at yes. open and say, yes. do you have a table? And if they say no, you know they're lying to you. You know, <laughs> like, you know there is an availability to eat exactly when you want to eat. So delight, hard delight. <laughs> okay, so another story that caught our attention this week was from the BBC. It's about a guy who woke up in the middle of the night with a lot of trouble breathing. Doctors decided he must have gotten a spider bite on his uvula, which spider experts say is extremely <laughs> unlikely. But there is general mythology that people swallow an average of eight spiders a year. But again, experts are kind of like, nah. So I don't know. I mean, the headline of this article is essentially like, you probably don't swallow as many spiders as you think you do. However, like... Just the idea of spider swallowing alone, I'm pretty sure is is heavy burden, but I'm really curious what y'all... I mean, is there some delight to be found in the fact that we're not swallowing 80 a year? Dylan, you were like shaking your head very aggressively. <laughs> this is a burden. This is bad. This is a burden and it's bad. Um, I was horrified. I can't believe this article was even sent to me. I feel offended <laughs> that I had to read it. The I- Do I need to apologize to you again? No, 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 no. I, I think one apology. I'll include it in the letter. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Joe, Joe is a long letter Joe's writing. Um, I The image that is now burned into my head forever is that a, a spider potentially bit this man's uvula, which is now something I'm yeah. never going to be able to mm. get out of my head. Um, Hard yeah. burden. Yeah. That's that's my take. Well, I just think that this is one of those stories where it's like, here's a gruesome murder, but murders don't happen every day. You know, I just think it's like it was a real hard pill to swallow, so to speak, you know, especially with the uvula as it is. And I think a lot of people, I think after reading this article, are going to say, what is a uvula? Because in my mind, it's an eye. It's a part of an eye. But oh, it turns turns out it's uh, it turns out it's um it's not it's part a of the throat dangle, yeah. and that is hard. Even that's really that is hard. That's hard to <laughs> you know. That's a, it's a, almost a Pixar film. The little spider crawling into the mouth and going to the dang. Doesn't it seem like a Finding Nemo too? It does. But <laughs> Joe, I love that you learned what a uvula was from this, and I think there's yeah. a delight in learning. Oh, that's a cute spin. Mm -hmm. Delight. Okay, I'm going to say this. This story is a delight. (laughs) Mm, Thank you. (laughs) 
I love Thank it you. so much. I, I, there are two things that I have to share. I, I feel compelled to share right now. One is, do you know there's this craze of people taping their mouth shut when they sleep mm-hmm. because some science taught them that they'd breathe more deeply through their nose? We had a friend sleep over recently, and she literally taped her mouth shut when she slept. Just like with packaging tape or something? I don't know what it was. I I hope it oh, was— Oh, there's this new boob tape. Yes. It, I think it was designed for the mouth. Oh. Wow. But you think it was boob tape, Joe? Well, there is this boob tape you could put on your skin, and you're supposed to use it for when you wear— You know, like those looks where people your wear a blazer yeah, 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 yeah. with no, yes. nothing yes. underneath? And is that boob tape double-sided so that it attaches to mm-hmm. the blazer and your boob? No, but that's a huge market yeah. that you should kind of get into. Yeah, I think it's all three of us. We were here for the inception. <laughs> Thank you for including me. That yeah, seems yeah, very yeah. generous. Come on. You're actually you're part of the profit sharing of anything <laughs> yeah, we you, create here. You're the host of the Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> so... Did they say they sleep better be- when they use it? Um, they did, and then I tried to do it, and I've never taped my mouth shut, but I like try to like hold terrible. my mouth and then it's breathe, scary. and it's like overwhelming. Um, yeah. There was a second, just burning thing I had to share here, uh-huh. which is that you know, in this article, they question like where this misconception comes from. Mm-hmm. I know where this misconception comes from: Snapple bottle caps. Do you remember the Snapple bottle cap facts? Yeah, it yeah. was under there, and I wow, I, I can I am ninety nine percent sure I'm remembering this correctly. That under the Snapple bottle cap, it was like, do you know the average human swallows seven to eight bugs in their lifetime, or whatever it was, and that stuff is just passed around. Okay, so we are a little like half ish bird and half ish delight. We talked to Joe into finding it a delight, which I mm, love. Yeah, I, I, I love don't that you know to that, that I suddenly too. wanted to take that stance, but I stand firm in burden. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so our last story is about Torbjorn Patterson, who's a 44-year-old Danish man. And he decided he wanted to visit every country on Earth without traveling on an airplane. I think that's probably all you need to know to determine burden or delay. But just in case it helps, uh, we'll say he thought it would take four years and it ended up taking 10 years. And on coming home, he said that he feels fortunate to be alive, <laughs> which is... A pretty intense statement. He also said he feels well above his age coming out of this and that this could be 50 years of life experience crammed down to 10 years. Uh, Joe, burden or delight? Uh, I've, you know, it does seem so stressful. Just the boats and the, I'm sure right? there was some repelling. And that is, you know, that seems really tough because also, can you imagine with a rolly bag? I don't know Ugh. how you do it. So Mm-mm. I think that for on be, on behalf of this man, I would say this is a burden, but it is impressive. It really is impressive. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Dylan? I, I definitely also think burden. Like this is one of those things that is overwhelming. And Joe, you're right. Like when for him, burden for people who know that this person touched, every, you know, 165 countries – Awesome. Go, oh, excuse me. 195 countries. Awesome. Go him. I don't think I would have known how many countries there were. The no, it also it reminds me of this thing. Um, my dad did it when when I was younger, when we would go on a vacation somewhere. He was so intent on getting the photo of the place. And it so mm. there are like 
500 identical photos of him and me standing facing the camera dead faced <laughs> with a different background behind us. <laughs> and to me, this is the like equivalent of that. Do you know, it's like, okay, so mm-hmm. this king did go to 195 countries, but like, what does he remember other than the logistics of it? Yeah. And that's why it's a burden. And then at the end of the article, his takeaway is people are just being people everywhere. And I'm like, sweet girl, I could have, I, 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 I could have told you that, you know. Yeah, but yeah. go him, go him. I, I am firmly pro him, and yeah. firmly anti the burden that this clearly had on him. You know. Yeah, it does seem like it was it was a heavy one. I also, I don't know. Te- like, I think your point, Dylan, about the idea of like doing it just to do it as opposed to like actually being able to enjoy traveling, it mm. does just seem like at that point you're just trying to fill your passport and it's yeah. this like sort of statusy thing as opposed to like yeah. actually, I don't know, people are going to people everywhere, yeah. you know. But <laughs> it took 10 years to learn that. And you know what? Sometimes the longest journeys give us the simplest, simplest conclusions. And I love that for him. Dylan. Can you believe that that's where we came to at the end of this section? <laughs> this is a se- this is a therapy Zoom session. That's yeah. what this, this is. It's a beautiful moral. <laughs> yeah. It is. I agree. We made it. And it was lovely. And I appreciate both of you for coming on. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. In just a minute, we are going to hear from a TV business writer at Variety all about what the strikes in Hollywood mean for the future of entertainment. The stakes are actually super high. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to the Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Up next, we are going to talk about what the heck is going on with the strikes happening in Hollywood. As of Wednesday, the Writers Guild strike has reached 100 days, and the Screen Actors Guild has picketed alongside them for nearly a month now. It is a fight over salaries, artificial intelligence, and residuals, among other things, and it gets to the root of whether the status quo can survive. Jennifer Maz is a TV business writer at Variety, and she says that peak TV has peaked, and the industry cannot keep churning out as many original series as they are. She's here to walk us through the strike thus far and what's next. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Greta. Okay, so let's start with the strike itself. Where currently do negotiations stand? So there are currently no negotiations scheduled uh, or coming up or even being talked about starting as there were Mm. last week. That's where... um, the AMPTP, the organization uh, on the studio side, the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, had a meeting with the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, uh, the Writers Union, to talk about 
restarting talks for a negotiation. That did not go well. Um, and now there is no next thing scheduled to talk about talking again. Same goes for with SAG. They're returning to the table, supposed to be returning to the table with WGA first. And seeing as they couldn't get that done, hmm. they won't be going to SAG to have a similar conversation about having a conversation. Mm -hmm. It seemed like no one came to that table with the expectation anything would come out of it. And it didn't. Wow. That's that sounds rough. <laughs> yeah. So I do want to say for listeners before we get too far into this conversation that uh there are employees at WBEZ, including myself and Anna Bauman, who produces the show, who are members of SAG-AFTRA. We, you know, it's a different contract. So obviously we are not on strike, but just for a full dis disclosure of that. So, I mean, it sounds like talks are at such a standstill, but can you talk about like what would theoretically be on the table if there were a table at which people were willing to sit and discuss issues? Yeah. So the thing with this particular um, negotiation is though it is two very different unions, they both have concerns that are along the same lines, one being AI. And that's become an increasing concern um, just during picketing and during the strike. And as more conversations mm -hmm. have happened publicly with the press, not privately because no one's talking behind doors um, for meetings about the concerns of AI. And it seems like Everyone's on the same side on WGA and SAG-AFTRA being very concerned about the studios not being willing to explicitly say, here's what we won't let it take from you. Here's what it won't do to your job. Here are promises we can make moving forward about what we won't do. And that has the WGA and SAG-AFTRA members very nervous. Um, and then the studios are kind of like, well, let's wait and see. We don't know what we're going to do with that. So we'd rather just put a pin in that, not address that in these contracts. Um, and then the other area they cross over here most is streaming residuals, where mm -hmm. both writers and actors feel very underpaid when their shows go to streaming or start in the first place on streaming. But the best indicator people have gotten so far is when you see a check for something that may have aired in reruns on cable or on broadcast and you see a residual check, which is where residuals started. And you see, you know, it's a small amount but the amount that you see now with streaming residuals we've seen some with a penny we've some mm. seen some people i don't even know how these checks exist that have like negative sense i don't what that's Ugh. yeah so it, it's a really weird situation that we're in because the streaming model came about after the previous contract like the streaming as we know it was very much in its infancy. It was really only Netflix, like, in the game. It was, like, Netflix and then, like, just YouTube, pretty much, my, is my understanding, yeah. is that it was just, yeah. like, that early of days in terms of what you would stream on exactly. TV. Yeah, yeah. And, and it was so, so, so early in terms of originals. And that is where <laughs> there wasn't a precedent set for what streaming shows, movies, whatever, would make or for what shows that once existed on television and aired on television, their library is going to streaming, what you would make from that. So it's twofold. It's people who write streaming originals and act in streaming originals wanting better residuals for those. And it is people whose shows have aired for years in reruns or in syndication who are used to making a certain amount of money in residuals from those. When they go to streaming, it, it becomes almost non-existent. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that has to do with the fact that that model was built for broadcast and it was built for cable. And that was agreed upon between the WGA and SAG-AFTRA and AMPTP 
decades ago. It's it's a hard conversation, especially because there's so little information about viewership. That's what yeah. I was just about to say is that it seems like a huge part of this problem is that networks are extremely secretive about streaming numbers. And, you know, I mean, I saw a tweet from someone, I forget who it was recently, or no, maybe it was an Instagram post. And I think it was like a comedian. And he was essentially theorizing, like, I think what's happening is that these shows actually aren't getting numbers. And so that's part of the problem. But it's just like we have, there's no way you could even fact check that because we just, no one knows. Yes, that is the entire problem here. And for the ones that, you know, I will give Netflix credit that for a long time, we really, really gave them a hard time about not giving us numbers consistently about cherry picking Mm. and saying, this did this. And we're like, great. What does that mean in relation to all of the other shows though? I have no idea what that means. So they did about almost two years ago now, I think, or at least a year and a half started doing their weekly top 10 that has actual numbers and it's their top 10 um, English language TV uh, series, non-English language, and then the same for movies, non-English and then English. And that's around the world. And they do it previously. It was in hours viewed, but now they have actually changed it to viewers, like overall watched views of this. And it is the best indication we have from any streamer of what it's doing, but it's still just one streamer and it's still only those top 10. So anything hmm. that's not on the top 10... I don't know how it did. I know how well the top 10 things, according to them, did. And Mm. so that's far from being something that, you know, is full data. And then it's also far from being anything we can create, like an apples to apples comparison across streamers. And ultimately, they don't want each other to have that data. Because as businesses, like everyone's very secretive. A lot of times people don't even want to until they have to disclose their subscriber numbers. They don't want to talk yeah. about it because they don't know how it's going to be perceived. But it also is one that, yes, if you tell people how good or bad their show is doing, they will have a better understanding of what they should be making. Right. So, yeah, I mean, are you really thinking of this as kind of an existential crisis for streaming platforms? It just seems like so much. I mean, granted, we have a very little data about this, but it seems like so much of it is the idea that broadcast is still where stuff is making money and the revenue piece just isn't coming through the way Netflix needs it to, you know, for example. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a great point. And the only two streaming services at this time that are profitable are Netflix and Hulu. And that's it. So no other streaming service, all of these streamers, everyone who has launched one, everyone who has been boasting about their subscriber growth, or at least was for like a year, had that growth and and that engagement had those numbers to talk about. Everyone wanted to take their content back from Netflix or wherever it had been streaming. Um, and build their own thing. None of these are profitable yet. And when you have a product that you are trying to make profitable, it would be difficult if you have planned and budgeted that this is what we're paying people for streaming residuals on our path to profitability. Now we actually have to reevaluate and these people who work for us are demanding to be paid more money for the work they are making for us we didn't mm. keep that in the equation when we were trying to come up with how soon we could become profitable with this. If we have to pay them that, it's going to be a lot longer. Right, and right. then why are we in this business? 
Yep. So this might be a huge weird tangent, but to what extent do you think also part of the problem is you have your Amazon Prime and your Apple TV, which like literally have huge other companies that make shit tons of money and therefore don't actually maybe need to be profitable in the way like your Hulu or your Netflix would need to be. Totally. I mean, I don't think there's any world in which Apple or Amazon are relying on their streaming services uh, becoming profitable. So, and that, that brings up an interesting point that they are among the ones in this AMPTP side that we have heard, you know, it's companies like that who don't have the same level of stakes or the same concerns, their specific concerns that they have and what they care about when they don't. But these are the ancillary parts of their business. And I really like a lot of Amazon uh, and Apple shows. Big Severance fan, big fan of the boys. But if, if the streaming services themselves don't ever become profitable... I don't think it's the biggest concern for these companies that have those as like an in in addition to their products, right? Yeah, it's so fascinating. So yeah, I mean, you're talking about like, to what extent do you think the, the all of these companies are just going to end up needing to be more strategic about the shows that they're making because they can't pay out the way they need to as it is? Yes. And forward looking at what does this mean when it does end? Because it will end. <laughs> I know mm. it sounds like it won't, but we all know it will. I have no idea how. I have no idea when. But I, it, it will. But peak TV is gone. We will see a reduction in the number of shows made. People cannot afford to reach the levels of content spend that they have in previous years. And now on earnings calls, we've heard words thrown around like cautious and responsible. Mm. And <laughs> these are things people are saying, especially when they are being asked, you know, are you lowering your content spend? And if they're not, then they want to say, we're going to make more responsible decisions. We're going to take harder looks at things. And they want you to know it's not going to be about volume anymore. It's going to be about, okay, you can make one House of the Dragon level budget show this Mm -hmm. year. And -hmm. then you've got to pick cheaper ones that will also be winners. So it's going to be fewer shows and it's going to be a lot of time spent figuring out how much money we can spend and then how much money we have based on whatever they end up having to pay in residuals. I also think we should point out, and I don't have any numbers directly ahead of me, you may, but part of what these folks are arguing is that they, I mean, if some of these CEOs took pay cuts of probably pretty small percentages, that could also theoretically solve the problems that we're talking about here, correct? Um, There's no doubt that (laughs) as someone who follows uh, CEO pay packages very closely, and there was for a little bit there a time then when all the CEOs were like, I will generously take a cut during the pandemic. That went away. And yes, those paychecks are very big, especially when you look at it in terms of not base salary, when you look at bonuses and then like extra bonuses and, and things like that. And yes, it's definitely true. Those are, those are crazy big numbers, but I think it's, it's bigger than that. I I don't think it would fix everything. It wouldn't fix everything long-term either. It's, it's gotta be something where everyone starts to look at what else can be done and companies really don't want to lower their um, C-suite execs uh, paychecks. As you can see, there are layoffs across the board at those companies and that's something that they're doing first. So 
I don't know that the CEO pay is going to be one that they would actually touch realistically. Sure. Sure. So we are in kind of the middle of August at this point. Um, fall TV should be right around the corner. What can we expect in terms of what is actually going to be out there? Uh, so it's going to be a lot of sports, a lot of unscripted content. Uh, My favorite thing. Yes, a lot of reality shows. Um, all of those are not affected by the strike. There's also a lot of acquired content um, that's either uh, the CW, for instance, as a lot of Canadian imports that they're using to fill oh, the schedule. I'm kind of stoked about that idea, actually. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, one of them is Sullivan's Crossing, which is from the uh, uh, is an adaptation of a book from the author of Virgin River. Netflix is very popular show, oh, so that's like yeah. yeah. So they're doing that. <laughs> CBS is going to be airing Ghosts proper, like the British Ghosts, which is what oh. their show Ghosts is based off of. Oh, right, so, right. Yeah, okay. so they're, and they're also doing the broadcast premiere of Yellowstone. Um, uh-huh. So that's a lot of pulling from one part of your company because Yellowstone is Paramount Network, owned by the same uh, parent company, um, Paramount, as CBS. So they're going to be airing that. People are trying to find very innovative ways of filling a schedule that will have no new broadcast scripted shows. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. And it's going to be tough for a while because the longer and longer this goes on, the more and more the year schedule becomes a giant question mark and you have to find more and more to fill. And so I think a lot of studios made the fall plan knowing the fall is going to be a wash and we'll just figure it out. But huh. thinking it wouldn't go on long enough that it would really start to affect the winter, the spring, and the rest of the year. I think this is such an interesting uh, story for so many reasons. I mean, another thing that we should probably note for listeners is that this is the first time in about 60 years that both WGA and SAG have struck at the same time. And a weird fun fact is that last time it happened, Ronald Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild, which is... Just an interesting note in (laughs) in terms of the course of time. But I mean, it sounds like this is going to change the industry forever one way or the other. Is that like, is that an exaggeration you think at this point? Oh, no, there's, there's no question that this will change the industry forever. And I think it's, it's one of the reasons why it is going on as long as it is, because everyone knows that and everyone knows when they do come back to this table and ultimately have to make some sort of agreement, whoever feels like they're losing in this might feel like they're losing harder than they would have if it Mm. wasn't, the stakes weren't so high. And so it's why people are probably less willing to give, you know, you see people on the picket line who are like, we have to stay together. We have to keep this going. We cannot fold because if we do, it's our livelihood. And then on the studio side, they're talking about how, you know, if we give in now, who knows? And so it's that and seems like two groups of people who are both not willing to budge because they know whatever they get into now will change Hollywood forever. Well, thank you so much for giving us some really interesting and important context. I would love to check in with you down the line to see how things are going at some point, too. Absolutely. That's it for this week. Thank you very much for listening along. 
You probably already know this, but I'm going to give you a little book club update anyway. We're in the middle of August, and our selection this month is The Country of the Blind. It's by Andrew Leland. He was on Fresh Air this week. You should check out that interview. You can hear him talking to me. And then you should read the book because it is legit fantastic. We are recording our panel about it on August 21st. So send over your thoughts about that before then. Also, we are doing a segment next week about summer music, and we would love to know what your favorite song of the summer is. We're collecting voicemails on that one, too. Just record yourself on your smartphone being like, hey, this is Haley in Savannah, and my favorite song this summer is blah, blah, blah by blah, blah, blah. And then we'll play a little bit of it on next week's show. Wouldn't that be fun? Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman at WBEZ in Chicago and is part of the NPR Network. And our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.